How do you train to study counterfeits? The answer is that you study the real thing. I'm sure you guys have heard uh, that before. You study the real thing. That's how governments train their agents to spot counterfeit money. So you study how it feels, because oftentimes it's printed on something different uh, than regular printer paper. It's printed on a unique type of paper. You study the way it looks. So American currency has red and blue fibers actually embedded inside the paper, as opposed to printed onto the paper. Uh, you can look at the crisp printing of the borders, let's say, and other marks there. And then you can hold it up to the light and see security threads. You see watermarks. So studying the real thing over and over and over again and giving yourself to doing just that enables you to be a master of it. So that way when the funny money comes along, then you are prepared and you won't be fooled. The letter that we've been walking through, that is the letter of First John or the book of First John, it helps us to spot the fake by reviewing and helping us to study the real deal. That is, real Christians, what do they love? What do they live like? What do they believe? And so John is a disciple of Jesus. You know, he was familiar with the real deal. Jesus himself, he was an apostle. God used him to lay the foundation of the church, built on the profession that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And so he knew what it was like to follow Jesus. And the reason why he needed to clarify in 1 John, the reason why he needed Christians to come to this clarity was because some in this young church, as you can imagine, um, false teachers were rising up in its presence. And they were teaching things that went directly against the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they claimed a Christ. They said, I have a Christ. I have a Jesus. I believe in a God. But at the same time, it was something so far from biblical Christianity. It's kind of like they were appropriating all of those things, the names, and sort of redefining everything and repackaging it and making it something so different, a monstrosity from what it originally was. And this week we see that people who have fellowship with God, real Christians who claim God and claim Christ, they practice righteousness. And then those who claim a Christ but don't live in righteousness, but instead choose to live in sin, that John just says it doesn't make sense. It's incongruent with the gospel message itself and God's character. And as we mentioned before, uh, John, he brings us around to different like way stations, if you will, Helping us examine what the real is from the false. And so he brings us to like a doctrinal way station. Do you believe that Jesus is the God man? Fully God, fully man. He brings us to the morality section, which is what we study today. Do you obey Christ's commands? And then he brings us to a love station, which is kind of like a subset from the morality one. It's do you love other Christians? And so today we look at the way station, if you will. Of morality. Do you obey Jesus' commands? And John writes, giving the Christians encouragement. Keep in mind, right? I mean, you can imagine if we all of a sudden experienced a church division where some of us started saying, oh, yeah, you know what, Pastor Rick and Jeremy and leaders teach there? That's not real Christianity. Real Christianity is this thing over here where Jesus is not God, the God man, where we don't necessarily need to obey Jesus' commands. And we don't need to particularly care about his people. And then so 
those of us who would stick around continuing in biblical faithfulness, you know, we very much would have ingrained in our minds what it was like to separate from our friends, to make that division. <clears throat> and John says, as we looked at last week, he says, you pers- con- he says, you persist in belief. Continue in those very things. So these Christians, you can imagine, they needed some encouragement. And John gives them that encouragement. Continue in exactly what you have been given. Turn to 1 John chapter 2, verses 28, and then we'll go to chapter 3, verse 10. <clears throat> 1 John 2, 28 to 3, 10. And as I listen, as I read, listen to the determination John wants the Christians to have. He's teaching them what real Christianity is. So listen to the affirmation he gives them, because they need encouragement. Verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence, not to shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called his children, children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either known, seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who the children of God, or who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So the main point from today's passage, a true Christian, a true child of God, practices righteousness. Thus, making the claim, I follow Jesus while living in sin, John says, that doesn't make any sense. And he drives home those two points, two, points of the same, uh, two sides of the same coin, really. He drives home those points, giving us three reasons why those things are true. Three reasons why. Why Christians practice righteousness and that claiming Christianity while living in sin does not make sense. Number one, he says, this is the outline for today. A righteous God gives birth to righteous children. So if you're writing things down, that's point number one. A righteous God gives birth to righteous children. Number two, children of God ready themselves for their righteous savior. Children of God ready themselves for a righteous savior. And then point number three, Christ appeared to take away sin. Christ appeared to take away sin. Let's go ahead and look at point number one. Why do true Christians practice righteousness? Because a righteous God gives birth to righteous children. I don't know if you heard it in the passage, but there's this birth theme throughout. So go ahead and look there at the beginning. 
verse 29, it reads at the end of that verse, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And then go ahead and look at the end. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3. He says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who the children of God are and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So keep in mind here, John is giving them hope and encouragement. He's encouraging them to persevere in what they already know and what they already have received. And to some of us, this language of being born of God might seem a little strange. John says there in verse 9 again that, that God's seed remains in those born of God. So whatever it is this is, this is, this is what causes true Christians to persevere in righteousness. So what he isn't talking about is physical birth. So no one should think that God is our physical birth parents. Um, but instead he's talking about spiritual origin. He's talking about the spiritual birth of a Christian. Now, I know many folks today, they, they, they seem to inherently tie together uh, religion, their re- religious affiliation with their parents. So what it looks like is, hey, I'm born into a so-called Christian family, so therefore I must be Christian. But actually, the Bible support does not support that at all. The Bible says if one is to be made a Christian, one needs to be born again by the Spirit. And that's what we mentioned last week. That's what John talks about last week. They're born again of God, not of lineage, not of parental lineage, physical birth parents. And it's telling that, uh, you know, in Scripture, if you read, uh, the apostles refer to Christians as those who have been born again. Those are the Christians. Their identity are people who have been born again. And Jesus himself talks about this. There's a story in uh, John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, he comes up to, uh, to Jesus and he wants to see the kingdom of God. He wants to get into the kingdom of God. And he is a teacher of the Old Testament law. So he goes up to Jesus and Jesus knows exactly what he's thinking. And Nicodemus, he's saying something like, uh, you know, teacher, we know that you are a teacher born of God or sorry, come of God, because no one can do the things that you are doing. And Jesus, knowing exactly what he gets at even in sort of this shrouded comment, he answers him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So there he's getting right at what Nicodemus really wants. And taking Jesus' words literally, this is how he responds. He says, well, how can a man enter into his mother's womb again and be born? Jesus answers, unless one is born of water and the spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. You hear that combination that Jesus talked about, water and the spirit? Some people want to say that that refers to baptism. And so baptism, therefore, gives you entry into the kingdom of God. Merely getting wet or going under the water or being sprinkled upon. Um, But here, that's not what he's talking about. That's not what he refers to when he says water and the spirit. He actually mentions again what we spoke of last week. This here is the new covenant. The new covenant where God says that he's going to promise to do something new that he hadn't done before with Israel. Everyone in Israel did not necessarily believe in Jesus or believe in God. They didn't follow him. 
So not all descendants of Abraham, for example, were uh, genuine believers. And then even those who might who would fall into the boundary of Israel, even some of them weren't true believers. And so God promises that he is going to clean the soul and reorient the soul to him so that everyone in the people of God would actually believe. So water stands for cleansing. Spirit is the reorientation of the heart when God gives us a spirit. And the Old Testament spoke about this in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. So listen to how Ezekiel speaks of this using the same combination, water and the spirit. And this is this new covenant, this promise to do something new. Ezekiel 36 reads, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. So clearly he's not thinking about just physical dirt on the body, right? That might happen, let's say, in something like baptism. He's talking about a new heart. A reorientation. He goes on in verse 26 of chapter 36. And I will give you a new heart. This is God speaking. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, he says, to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Did you notice what a new heart and new spirit does to the believer when they are born again by the spirit? There in Ezekiel, he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's causal. You get the spirit. So A happens and then B happens. But of course, what happens is all of this obedience and this desire is rooted in this new heart that desires to love God and obey his commands. That's what the new birth causes to bring about. This is what happens. So when we are born again, that is when we become Christians. That's when we repent and believe. And when God gives us the spirit, that happens all at the same time. So when you confess Christ and when you believed in him, when you repented and believed, you were born again. It all happens at the same time. So what happens then is with this new heart and with this spirit, the things we used to do are no longer appealing. Uh, what we used to find attractive, we find unattractive because we got a new heart and we want to follow God's commands. We love him and we therefore love his commands. We love him wherever he can be found, traces of where he can be found, especially in the commands, let's say. Um, I got a story and I've told this recently at uh, Biola where I teach, so if you've heard it, you can bear with me. Um, a wonderful example of how when we have new spirits, we desire to be like our father. It happens in conversion all the time. So when you were converted, if you remember becoming a Christian later on in life, you probably know what this is like to actually receive the spirit of the father and then slowly desire to be like your heavenly father. When me and Melanie were uh, ministering in Dubai, I was there as an associate pastor in the Middle East. We had the pleasure of getting to know this couple from a Russian-speaking country. And they had left the Russian-speaking country and wound up in Dubai. Part of the reason was not only job, but because Dubai was more liberal than their Russian-speaking country. And they wanted to live together, so they weren't believers. You know, she was a, a, a Russian Orthodox um, by name only, so she didn't really believe. And, and her boyfriend was a Muslim by name. Um, and so what happened is, you know, they're living together in Dubai and somehow someone invites her to church 
And she says, okay, you know, I'll go ahead and go to this English-speaking church just to check it out and see, see what's going on with this Christianity stuff. And uh, she goes there, and someone hands her a Bible, and she begins actually to read it. And soon enough, she just, she finds herself, she, she finds that she can't put it down, and she's reading it and reading it. And then eventually, she actually believes it. She actually comes to realize that while Jesus is God and that he's come to die on the cross for sins so that I can be forgiven of my sins. So now I don't know. I don't know what's going on in the process. I hear about it later when I was doing their uh, premarital counseling. And, uh, you know, I was blown away and really encouraged. So she's converted. She's genuinely following Jesus. But at the same time, she knows that she just reads the Bible like, okay, so God doesn't want me sleeping with my boyfriend. And God doesn't want me living with my boyfriend, uh, so I need to do something. And eventually she tells the church, and the church helps her out, figure out new living situations, stuff like that. <clears throat> but in the meantime, there was this period of time when she was trying to figure out what to do. And, you know, they're non-Christians. They're doing what non-Christians do, stuff like that. And so all of a sudden, you know, they were together for, for you know, years, living together, uh, obviously having sexual relations with one another. And all of a sudden, she just says, okay, you know, I know that God doesn't want me to do this, so I'm going to put a – or sleep with my boyfriend. So, so I'm going to put a body pillow in between us in the bed. And the boyfriend was like, what is going on with this person? You know, obviously we're doing things that non-Christians do and uh, that we want to do. And then all of a sudden, she starts going to church, and she lays this body pillow, this barrier in between us. So she's realizing, okay, God is pure, and so he wants me to be pure. She, as a child of God, wants to live like her righteous father. It just happens naturally because that's what God says and that's what God does when he gives people the new birth. And what is amazing is that uh, she takes her Bible and she says, okay, I want my, my boyfriend to believe. And so she opens it while he's at the computer and just consistently reads it to him while he's you know, doing the computer. It starts with Genesis from the beginning. Where else? And then he, she reads, you know, while he's on the computer. And this happens like days and days and days. And she gets discouraged because he doesn't seem to be bearing any fruit, her evangelistic method. <clears throat> um, and then one day, as he was at the computer and she was reading, she just sort of slams her Bible. She's discouraged. She doesn't see any hope. And then he says, hey, why'd you stop? And then so she gets really excited and then begins to read some more. And then eventually he becomes a Christian. Because he was convicted that God is actually God and that I am his creation. I ought to worship him. And then he realizes too, like, oh man, what she was doing before with that body pillow thing. I actually think that's a good idea. As we move towards marriage, because he started thinking like, I actually need to marry this girl. As they move towards marriage, they, we help them figure out living situations. And we say, look, great. We want you guys to love each other. Sex is good. It just should happen in marriage. Uh, so let's just try and encourage you guys in the faith while you figure out things and grow in your faith and that's a wonderful example about how a child of god desires to live according to their father right the stuff we did before we don't really want to do that anymore and i'm sure to some of you guys that is your story the stuff that used to rule you you no longer want to be ruled by that you might struggle with that just as all christians do but yet fundamentally you recognize that you have been drawn out of that. You want to be done with it. It's meant to work that way for the Christian and his or her father. The more we look at the father, the more we grow in our knowledge of him and knowing him, 
knowing his will, his desires, what makes him tick. The more you study his works throughout all of history, from the beginning of time, and even what happened before the beginning of time, as he was loving his son, we begin to say more and more, look at my father. That's what my father does. Look at what my father did. That's what he stands for. And that's what I want to stand for. Because he is that good and that righteous and that holy and that loving. So John reminds us, as he reminded the original readers, you got God as your father. And he has cleansed you and he has reoriented your heart so that you want to pursue him. Look there at 3 verse 1. Chapter 3 verse 1. Again, giving, injecting them with some great encouragement. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we, that we should be called God's children, children of God. And so we are. That is what we are. Of course, this love is ultimately seen and displayed in the gospel. Go ahead and turn there to chapter 4, verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 10. He says, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the very definition of love. I look forward to getting to that chapter and walking that through through with you guys. So if our actions reflect our origin, if our actions reflect our origin, what then does that mean for those who practice sin? Because that's also what John is clarifying here. What does that mean for them who practice sin? Look at 3 verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So John is clear about the lineage of those who make a life of sin. It is a lawless lineage. They stand in opposition to God. And look there in chapter 3 verse 8. He says there, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. That's his origin, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning since the beginning. So the child looks just like the father in that situation as well. He says, you want to see the devil's character? You want to know his way, his wills, his purposes, his desires? That's the devil's mode of operation. He's been sinning from the beginning. And here, I think this points us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And even before that, when uh, the devil as an angel rebelled against God. But as we know it, in Genesis chapter 3... That's where he brings down Adam and Eve, twisting God's word, redefining God's boundaries and sort of calling them out and say, come out and live underneath my reign and rule as opposed to God's reign and rule. And so they sin. Where God had drawn a boundary and said, here, this is where I want you to play and live and love. And they say, I'm going to redraw that boundary and exercise my autonomy. And in so doing, they become like God, defining for themselves what good and bad is for themselves. So there, they, in effect, become gods unto themselves. Someone then who claims a Christ but lives in sin, John says, is of the devil. Someone who claims a Christ but lives in sin is of the devil. Now keep in mind here, no one is claiming perfection. John himself does not claim perfection. So if you're reading this and you're saying, oh my goodness, like there are times when I sin, does that mean that I am of the category of lawlessness and that I'm of the devil? John says no. The the language that he uses regularly, you know, one who makes a practice of sinning, 
one who lives a life of sin, that's one who really is walking in the footsteps of this lifestyle. This is not the one-off sin that we all struggle with as believers. And he says there in chapter 2, look there in 2 verse 1, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, so if you all, if anybody sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. So right there, he's saying, look, if you guys sin, you come to the Father where you know forgiveness. That's much different. You know, sinning when falling in temptation and therefore sinning as a Christian is very different than what it looks like to make a lifestyle or persist in unrepentant sin. That's key. It's unrepentant sin here. It's basically saying, look, God has said this, but I actually don't give a rip about what God says. I'm going to go ahead and pursue what I want. Real Christians then practice righteousness. The claim of someone who lives in sin but claims Christianity just makes no sense because God gives birth to righteous children in the spirit of God. That's point number one. Point number two, children of God ready themselves for their righteous Savior. Children of God ready themselves for their righteous Savior. Look at 3.1 again. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you guys notice that language of future there? The language of future. It's not only here, but there in 28. Go ahead and look there. 228. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from his coming. Shrink back in shame when he arrives there. And then in 3.2, this is just underscored so much more. Beloved, we are God's children now. I mean, just listen to the tenses in which he uses to create this hope and encouragement to them to persevere in what they already know. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. It hasn't arrived yet. That is Jesus Christ. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. See there, he's drawing similarity ties because we shall see him as he is. So he says, we are God's children now. So that's born again, family language. But just wait, he says, just wait until we reach what we will be. Now that hasn't been made known yet, but when he is made known, when he appears again, when that day comes, when he arrives to gather his people in all holiness and righteousness, as he is making them holy even now, he says, we shall be like him. And that's the hope there. We shall be like him for then at that point in time, that point in time that we all should be looking forward to if we're believers, we see him as, as he already is. Now, it is true that uh, there are some things that have not been revealed. So it says we what we will be has not been yet made known fully. So we don't know exactly what we will be like. Uh, the Bible says that we gain new bodies, new bodies that won't be prone to sin or failure. We will not sin anymore, thank God. Um, but that's not exactly 
what he's going at. He's not going at our physical new bodies here. The emphasis here is on purity. Did you see that? That's the hope here. Jesus is purity. Look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him, that is Christ the righteous one, everyone who hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. So the hope in verse 3 is being like the Savior. It's being like the Lord. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So, you know, you can think of like marriage, for example. Every bride who is getting married readies herself for her groom for that beautiful day. Now, I've done a number of weddings and to see the bride's face come down, you know, as the doors fling open and have the groom stand there. I've done it a number of times. And it's just it's, it's wonderful because t- time has been leading up to that period of time where they walk down the aisle to meet the groom and to be together, to give themselves together. Uh, you know, you see beautiful meeting up with the beautiful. Um, and so the bride readies herself for the groom there. The false teachers, keep in mind, the false teachers that had just departed, that are starting, you know, their own so-called church. Where is their desire to meet this pure and righteous one? They have no desire. By living in sin, right? How, do they show that they actually care about this groom who's coming in righteousness? His very character? But the Christian, they actually ready themselves for him because they love him. And they love everything that he stands for and all of his characteristics there. So to summarize, true Christians practice righteousness. The claim then that says, I follow Jesus, but I continue to live in sin, it just doesn't make sense. Why is that? Number one, because the righteous God gives birth to righteous children. And number two, because children of God ready themselves for their righteous Savior. So that's why Christians care about holiness and pursuing him. Because that is who he is, right? The father gives birth to righteous children. But then yet also, as Christ is, we want to see him as he is. And we want to wait for that day. And even now, God says that he's making all things new. And he begins that through the new birth. He says that in Corinthians, that we are being transformed from one degree of glory into another. That we are to be growing in sanctification. That we are to be pursuing holiness because that is who he is. So that's why we care about holiness. I mean, Christianity... There's anyone who thinks that Christianity is merely about rules to follow, and that therefore equals Christianity. Yeah, that, that's a very different Christianity than what the Bible says. The Bible says, I begin to love the holy God when I become a Christian, and then I love his holiness wherever it can be seen and found. So I love the brothers because you all, the brothers and sisters, they represent and actually have, to some degree, God's holiness and God's purity. And God's love even. And so where I see that, I love it and I love it all the more. And I want to foster it. I want to fan it into flame in myself, but then also in my brothers and sisters. Because ultimately, we're readying ourselves to meet Christ, the pure and righteous one. Point number three. True Christians practice righteousness and the claim then to say, I follow Christ, but to live in sin just doesn't make sense. Why is that? Point number three, Jesus Christ appeared to take away sin and unrighteousness. Look there at three, four again. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. But then look how clarity is offered to the Christians there in verse five. 
You know. Here's just a reminder, right? If any of you guys are tempted to follow those people who just left, the people who deny sin and say they have no sin before a holy God, he says, you know that he appeared to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. He is holy and he appeared to take away sin. So if the first reason focuses on God's character as the righteous father giving birth to righteous children, and then the second reason focuses on what the righteous Christ will do in the future, and then Christian, the Christian's response to that, here the third reason focuses on what God has done in the past in history through Jesus Christ and his gospel. So it's like he, he's saying, look, okay, I know that these folks just left, but you guys realize that the beginning of your new birth in Christ that is marked by righteousness. He says the future coming of Jesus is also to compel you to righteousness. And then he says, you look back in the past in history when God has worked in the gospel. And he says, and that is given so that you would labor in righteousness and be righteous yourself. Jesus Christ came to take away sins. So why would you claim I am a Christian but want to live in sin? You know, the Exodus... Um, in the Old Testament, when God draws Israel out of Egypt, is a picture of what God does for the Christian in the New Testament. When God draws Israel out of Egypt, he saves them, he delivers them. They are caught in slavery underneath the thumb of Pharaoh. In the New Testament, this, this uh, freedom from slavery idea is not necessarily to the nation. God actually says that that was portraying the salvation from sin. When God in the Old Testament says that he kicks down the doors, busts things open, and he rescues people so that they might be free. That is what has happened when Jesus delivers us from the domain of darkness and delivers us from sin. This is the very reason why Jesus came. It's the nature of the gospel. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Everyone is supposed to say, you look at Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, in the beginning, Adam and Eve sinned against God and created the problem. Through them, we inherited the sin nature, and we as well, we commit sins. And for that, the due is punishment. The Bible says, ultimately, in an eternal conscious punishment in hell. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that he, God sends his son to die on the cross to take our punishment, to die the death that we deserved, the wrath that we deserved, the sin and the punishment that we deserved upon himself, which is why Pastor Rick read from Isaiah 53. He bore our griefs, the iniquities, our iniquities was laid upon him and he took the punishment. And so everyone can be forgiven of their sin if they would repent and believe and turn towards him. And so you get that forgiveness of sin, right? He's actually the propitiation for our sins. So God then carries out his wrath upon Jesus. And because of that, he then is able to look favorably upon us because there is no barrier between us and God anymore because God has removed it. That is sin, the wrath that we deserved, all of that is gone. And so what do you make of the claim? I claim to follow Jesus, but I live in sin. It's against the very nature of the gospel. Hebrews 2.14 says, as the children, that is Christians, as the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is, God became flesh, God the Son, that is, 
He partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. But the, but the person who remains in sin and claims to be a Christian, they're saying, really, I want to place myself back onto the path of destruction. Jesus came, right, to destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver those under sin. And so the people who say, I claim Christ, but I live in sin, they're putting themselves back onto the path of destruction. Listen to 3 verse 8, chapter 3 verse 8 of 1 John. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You know, talking about the cross and how Jesus defeated sin. That's what he's talking about right here. The death of death and the destruction of Satan. All of that happens on the cross. And as he dies, he declares that sin has no mastery over him. Death has no mastery over him. And at the cross, we see all of God's holy antagonism towards evil and Satan. Why would we cling to Satan's ways, the devil's ways, embrace his will and his purposes and his desires as our own, but then yet at the same time say, I do have partnership with Jesus. It just doesn't make sense. You're putting yourself back into slavery, the very slavery that Jesus came to draw you out of. So we are left to conclude, if Christ stands against everything the devil is known for, and if Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, then it is incongruent to say, I follow Jesus, I am a Christian, while choosing to live underneath Satan and his ways. So if you're visiting with us today and you know yourself not to be a Christian, you know yourself not to follow Jesus, why would you want to remain on the path of destruction that Jesus says he works against. Why would you want to do that when God says, look, freedom from all of those things is available to you if you would only repent and believe. Jesus Christ came. He appeared to take away sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil and to say now that everyone who wants rest, you come to me. So the question is, have you repented and believed? In so doing, you can, in fact, know fellowship with God to be partnered with his holiness and his beauty and his love. To be partnered with God in his ways, his will, his, his purposes and his desires. If you're if you are a Christian. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus appeared to take away sin. And judgment and to free you to live a life that God has given you. To his glory. He really deals with it. And that should encourage you. I mean some of you guys even now. You wrestle with some sort of sin. That you want to be rid of. Here we should be, be reminded. That you should, you should be reminded. That Jesus Christ came. He appeared to take it away. To destroy the works of the devil. And in him you should have confidence. So if you are tempted to discouragement at all. Underneath the weight of your sin. And the things that you struggle with. Look to Christ. That's what this passage tells us. He appeared to take away sin. He is the one who's going to destroy the works of the devil. And you cannot in your own flesh. And what else is amazing is that we can own it, right? We own everything about who we are. We don't need to cover that up. Which is why it's fantastic that Christians just be sharing their lives about who they were in the past and what they are now presently in Jesus Christ. So we own that. We don't cover it up. 
Listen to Paul as he says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. He wants them to own it, this church. He says, you embrace who you were, but then know who you are currently in Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So there he's encouraging them towards righteousness, just like John is us. He says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's everybody, right? He just lumps us all into that category. That's us. None of us are going to inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. And he says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So can you imagine this church? Paul is saying such were some of you. Now, in today's culture, and probably even in that, that culture there, they're afraid to say, oh, no, actually, that isn't me. They want to hide the realities of who they were previously. But here, Paul brings it out to the open. Such were some of you. But God has worked miraculously in their lives and justified them, made them clean and sanctified them. So if you are a Christian struggling here under the weight of your own sin tempted to think that you alone are the one to bear this you are the one who alone delivers you from them just keep in mind look who are you before you were a believer these things is what you were and so it's no surprise that we are going to be struggling with these things so everyone here in this church right as we want to be righteous just as god is righteous as john encourages us as uh, paul encourages us everyone here will struggle to some degree with these things sexually immoral Yep, that's us. Idolaters, yeah, certainly, that's us. Adulterers in our heart, or even in practice, really. That might be some of us. People who have same-sex desire. Yep, that's some of us. Thieves? Greedy? Drunkards? Revilers? Swindlers? All of that is us. But Paul says, look, you look to Jesus Christ, who appeared to take away sin, and who destroys the works of the devil, and you rely on him. So I tell you this because I want you to own the depths of your sin, but then also to turn and own the great and deep grace of God given to you in Jesus Christ. That's greater than any sin that could ever weigh you down in your pursuit of righteousness and purity. So, do you struggle with sin? Do you make a practice of it? The question itself is a good thing. And if you struggle and you doubt your salvation, the very fact that you ask the question is a good thing. It means that your spirit desires, if you truly have repented and believed, it means your spirit desires to be righteous. It means that you desire to not practice this, but instead to practice righteousness. And there are Christians, the vast minority, who doubt their salvation on a regular, on a regular basis and doubt their assurance. But doubting itself is a good thing. But then you just have to move by the power of the Spirit to get to the depths of the grace of God in Christ. 
So if you face sin and if you feel that it is ruling you, know that John says God is faithful and just to forgive sins. So know that God forgives you. Know too that you are a child of God. Look at there again at 3 verse 1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. There, That's confidence right there. Not confidence in the way you feel at that particular moment. Maybe as you genuinely want to follow them who live in sin. Confidence here is in what God has done. He has given us this great kind of love. Some of your, some of your Bible versions might say, he lavished his love upon us. Beautiful language there. He lavishes it. And not only that, but, but, but John draws us to the kind of love, he says. In the ESV, it says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us? There, we're supposed to read that and think, my goodness, what I experience in the gospel is heavenly love come down to earth. It's the kind of love that John here is drawing our attention to. Some of your versions might say, how great is the love? That, just know that that greatness there carries with it a specific kind So God loves you and he lavishes his love upon you by calling you to be his child, even when you fall and sin against him. And so by trusting that he will forgive the truly humble and repentant, you know, he does that again and again and again. That's how powerful the cross is. And in Jesus Christ on the cross, he pays for your sin, past, present and future. So if you are tempted to live in sin, to make a practice of what you struggle with it, turn towards Jesus Christ again and recognize that he is just and he is faithful to forgive you of your sins. Why does it make no sense to claim a Jesus Christ but then to live in sin? On the flip side, why does it make complete sense to say to claim Jesus Christ and to live in righteousness? Well, number one, it's because a righteous God gives birth to righteous children. Number two, God's children ready themselves for a righteous Savior. And then number three, Jesus Christ appeared to take away sin and unrighteousness. So it doesn't make sense to do these things. To at least to uh, claim a Christ but live in sin. It goes against the very character of God. And it goes against the very gospel of Jesus Christ, who died to take away sins. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you for being a righteous God. We praise you for being a glorious God and a loving God who so displays your love by sending your son to die on the cross. Jesus, we praise you for your power. We know and we recognize that you appeared to take away sin, but not only that, you alone are the one to destroy the works of the devil. Father, we pray that we would know more of this holy antagonism towards all things evil. And so that would compel us and move us to love righteousness and holiness so much more. Father, just as your word says, we pray that we would in fact be holy as you are holy. And in the face of temptation, when we might be tempted to change the doctrines that you have laid down, or when we might be tempted to follow in patterns of unrighteousness, Lord, may you bring these things to mind, that you appeared to take away sin, that you destroyed the works of the devil. Remind us, Lord, cause our hopes to be set forward 
our minds and our eyes to be set forward to the time when you, the pure one, will come and you will meet us as your bride. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are making us holy and pure without blemish or spot through the washing with the word. In your name we pray. Amen.